Which brings me to the message today, overcoming your negative past. Most of us are born in life with some deficit. You know, in life there are things that we've all inherited that we didn't get a chance to choose. I didn't get to choose my parents. I didn't get to choose my race. I didn't get to choose my economic or social conditions of the family I was born into. They were bequeathed to you. Would that be fair to say? All right. And a lot of people unfortunately resign themselves to accept and continue living exactly in the condition and place they were born. But we want to declare today that it's possible to change and overcome your negative past. God has the power to transform our lives and make our lives an incredible blessing. I go to Genesis 41 and look at a man named Joseph. Joseph's life demonstrates to all of us persistence, courage, productivity, vision, mission, dreams, and fulfillment. But his life also has a lot of pain, trouble, and jealousy from his own family. When you get born into a family of 11 boys who are all underachievers, and you are the only dreamer among them, you're going to have trouble. And Joseph has trouble as a result of the family he was born into. I was talking last week to one of our members, Tony Warren, who came from uh, poverty and a a good-sized family, and how he was determined and kept telling them what he was going to do with his life, what he would become, and that he wasn't going to live like this, although he was an African-American living in a, in a, uh, a, a very poor position. He was born into that. But he told the rest of the family, this is who I'm going to be, and this is what I'm going to do, and they made fun of him. So he just went on and did it anyway. And they've had to all tell him, well, you did exactly what you said. And I thought, boy, Tony, way to go. You don't have to die where you're born like you're born. You can change. You can overcome. You can climb that mountain that's been bequeathed to you through no fault of your own. So Joseph wasn't content to live with the environment he was born into. He had a vision of greatness for his life. He got into trouble for it. You know, in life, nobody gives you trouble if you don't have a dream, but you will get into trouble when your dream extends beyond your present reality. Who do you think you are? Yeah, sure. In a million years, that'll happen. So so we go to Genesis 41, verse 50. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by the daughter of Pontifera, priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn son Manasseh, because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said, it is because God has made me fruitful and productive in the land of my suffering or affliction. So two sons were born to Joseph at a good time in his life. He's now out of slavery out of prison, and he's now prime minister of Egypt. His dream has come true, and now he's got two boys, Manasseh and Ephraim. And those two sons summarized the life of Joseph as he saw it. He called the firstborn son Manasseh, which means to cause to forget. It means to be delivered from the painful memory of the past, to be delivered from the consequences of the past. So when Joseph named Manasseh, He had already been delivered from the consequences of his past. His brothers had sold him into slavery, but God had turned it to his advantage. Joseph said, God has caused me to forget my past. 
God had delivered Joseph from his father's house and all the pain of rejection, jealousy, envy, and strife. So Manasseh means delivered, delivered from this cycle of frustration in his father's house. Then the other boy comes, Ephraim. Ephraim means fruitful, productive, prosperous. And Joseph named him because he said, God has made me prosperous in the land of my affliction. So it reveals to us God is not limited because of our location. God had delivered him. God had made him fruitful. God had made him prosperous right in the land, not out of it, of his affliction. So Ephraim means God will sometimes change your location in life. He's not limited by where you are. And sometimes he'll change it from your father's house to the uncertainty of unfamiliar territory. So he can bless you in this new land of uncertainty. God will always move you out of your comfort zone in order to bless you. Sometimes even naturally, migration is part of God's way to bless people. In world history, many people who migrated from one land to another got a better life because when you leave the familiarity of your past into the uncertainty of your future, oh boy, there is a drive in you to do far more than you were comfortable in your father's house. So Joseph is perceiving that the method of deliverance from my negative past is first Manasseh. First, God will deliver me from my past. Then God will give me Ephraim. God will then make me excellent or fruitful and productive. That's how Joseph saw it. Now time out. Joseph's wrong. Now I got to spend the rest of the time prove it to you. Ready? Genesis 48 verses 1 through 5. Sometime later, Joseph was told, your father's very ill. So he took his two boys, Manasseh and Ephraim, along with him. When when Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to see you, uh, his name has now been changed to Israel, but it's, it's Jacob. Israel rallied his strength and sat up on the bed. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and there he blessed me and said, I'm going to make you fruitful and increase your numbers. I will make you a community of people. I will give this land to you as an everlasting possession and to your descendants after you. Now then, your two sons born to you in Egypt before I came to you will be accounted as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. Did anybody notice he changed the order? It's Manasseh and Ephraim, but he changes it to Ephraim and Manasseh. Joseph, remember, saw the process of his life as Manasseh comes first, then Ephraim. God will deliver me first, then I'll be fruitful, excellent, and productive. Ephraim. But Jacob recounts the story. He changes the sequence. Instead of saying Manasseh and Ephraim, he says Ephraim and Manasseh. That's all right. Go ahead and tell somebody. I never saw that before because you didn't. All right. Now watch. Verse 8. When Israel saw the sons of Joseph, he said, who are these? These are the sons God has given to me here in Egypt, Joseph said to his father. So Israel said, bring them to me so I may bless them. And by the way, that's the father's responsibility in every household. Bless your children. In the tongue is the power of life and death. Not only in ancient Israel, but in biblical perspective, you have the power as the, as the authority of the home and as the man to bless the children. You see it all through Scripture. And if you don't have a husband, 
then mama, you bless them. But you have the power to proclaim blessing to shape the future of your children. In Israel, the right hand was the sign of favor, of power, and a double portion blessing. Where is Jesus seated today? At the right hand of the Father. It was a greater blessing than the left hand. So when Joseph took the two boys to their grandfather Jacob, he lined them up in their birth order, Manasseh and Ephraim. But Jacob changes the order. He crosses his two hands, and he puts the right hand on the younger son, Ephraim, and his left hand on the older son. And Scripture says, verse 19, he did it knowingly. So assuming I'm Jacob sitting here on the bed, he brings the two boys up in front just as you would. Firstborn Manasseh right here on grandpa's right hand. Ephraim, this is an open book quiz, folks, it's not hard. Ephraim over here on the left hand as the secondborn. Now Jacob is going to bless these boys. And he crosses his hands, and he puts his right hand not on Manasseh, but on Ephraim. And he puts his left hand on Manasseh. Here's a little by the way. I'm not going to go there, but I'd love to. This is for all the racist bigots that might secretly be here (laughs) or listening. Joseph married, as a Hebrew, married an Egyptian woman. These two boys are mixed breed, Israeli Egypto boys. Would that be fair? Would that be correct? If mama's an Egyptian and you're a Hebrew, I think so. And so how do these mixed race people come into the kingdom of God, into the Israel of God? Through the cross. It, uh, it's an old picture in the Old Testament, shadowy of a type of what Jesus would do in the new covenant where he says there's no Jew or Gentile, bond or free, male or female. There's no racial distinction in the body of Christ. We all come in the same way, by the cross, right? I love that stuff, but that's another day. Verse 17, when Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was greatly displeased. So he took hold of his father's hand to move it to Ephraim, from Ephraim to Manasseh. And Joseph said to him, no, no, my father, this one is the firstborn. Put your glasses on. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused. He said, I know what I am doing. I know my son. He too will become a people and become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he and his descendants a group of nations. So he blessed them that day and said, may God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. So he puts Ephraim ahead of Manasseh, and everywhere else you're going to see it in Scripture, it's Ephraim before Manasseh, although that's not the way they were born. Now there's a, there's a message here. God gives us insight as to how we conquer our negative past. God says, this is how Israel will be blessed. They will experience Ephraim first before Manasseh comes. God says, if I'm going to bless you, I will make you fruitful and productive first. And when I make you fruitful and productive in your negative situation, then that will bring reward and promotion and cause you to forget the pain of your father's house. Joseph is thinking, God will deliver me first, then he'll make me fruitful. Uh, Then I'll show up on time for work, then I'll do my best, then I'll be a little more excellent. And even today, people think God will cause me to forget my past, my pain, and he will deliver me from my father's house. Then God will make me fruitful. 
But those people are always looking for deliverance before being fruitful and productive. So they sit down, and they complain, and they whine, and they go into a fetal position, or they stay in a counselor's office forever waiting on God to deliver them. But God's pattern is not to deliver you first from your negative past. First, right in the stinky situation, He makes you fruitful, makes you productive, makes you excellent. And when you become fruitful and productive, your fruitfulness will make you forget the pain of your past. So God says, Ephraim first, then Manasseh. I will bless you with fruitfulness, then I will deliver you from the pain of your past. Now remember I told you we all inherited problems in life that we didn't cause, and there are people waiting for those problems to get solved. And they're going to wait and wait and wait before they get on with their life. They want to experience Manasseh deliverance before they get on with their life and become fruitful and productive, Ephraim. Yet God is saying, if you want Manasseh before Ephraim, you will never be fruitful in life. But in the midst of your affliction, I'll make you fruitful first, and when I bless you automatically, your promotion, your reward, your past will now have no influence over you again. If you don't experience fruitfulness and productivity, your past will haunt you for the rest of your life. Well, now I've got to spend the rest of this time proving that with illustrations. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 23, this is David and the giant Goliath. As David was talking to his brothers, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from the battle lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard Big Mouth. It says, whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled in great fear. Now, the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage. He will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. And David asked the men standing next to him, say what? What's going to be done for the man who kills this uncircumcised Philistine, defying the armies of the living God? Three things will happen to the man who kills Goliath. Number one, he'll become rich. Number two, he will marry into royalty and get the king's daughter. Number three, his family will have tax-free status. Ladies and gentlemen, that is what you call the blessing. Could I get an amen? Woo! For a poor boy, a nobody, David, to become rich. For a nobody to become a somebody and marry into royalty and get a princess? To be a debtor and become tax-free? First, you kill the giant. First, you got to be fruitful and productive. Until you kill the giant, you can't experience deliverance from your poverty or the ordinariness of your past. First, you have Ephraim, then Manasseh. So how's David going to kill Goliath? He's got to be productive. He's got to be fruitful. So how's he going to produce? He's got to use the tools he's been given, just like you. He he only has what he has, but he's got to use what he has. And what he has is a slingshot and a stone. Goliath's got a spear, a big mouth. He's got armor. He's got a shield. David's only got a slingshot. Ah, but for years, David hasn't had a private parking place or a corner office. David hasn't had a good high-paying job. He's been in obscurity and rejection. Nobody calls on him. Everybody gives him the crappy job. And a lot of times when we 
face our giant, we're so overwhelmed by its size, we forget what we have. David has been out in obscurity throwing rocks for years. This is not just a quick something just happened. This, this guy has been training for raining but doesn't know it. He's just been keeping predators off daddy's sheep. Big reward. Bam, got another one, you know. Bam, he's getting really good. And all the while, it's preparation for a future that's about to be offered. And we forget what we have. Don't worry about what somebody else has. What have you got? So nothing happens in the battle until a young man comes on the scene who's got confidence in his weapons. He could throw rocks. And because David had developed his skill with precision with lions and bears over years in a desert, he was confident, not cocky, he could take this giant down as well. He had a superior strategy. He wasn't stupid. He isn't going to get close to Goliath. He wouldn't have a prayer. He's going to launch a surface-to-air missile. So he gets within range. He knows his range well, boom, and lets that rock fly. That is not a lucky shot. That is a skilled shot by a guy who is excellent. He had been working on this skill for years, doing mundane things in obscurity and rejection. I think sometimes people think God jumped on a magic stone, circled it around Goliath's head. Heck no! David knew he could hit this sucker. He had been developing his skill, and the only unprotected spot on the giant was his forehead. So this had to be a skilled shot. It wasn't just because God was with David. God's with every believer. But it was because David had also developed his skill with accuracy and precision, and God could use it to affect the victory. 1 Samuel 17, verse 50, so David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, without a sword in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David prevailed because he knew how to use the skill that he had been developing for years, unwatched, unseen, unnoticed, unrewarded. What are you doing in your little wilderness right now, unseen and unnoticed? Yeah, well, when I get out of this crummy job, when I get that job, when I get this, when I get that, then I'll. That's called destination disease. And you'll never have anything. You're always waiting for somebody to give you something or for deliverance first before you're productive. And I'm just going to show you illustration after illustration where that just isn't going to work. So he got the reward of a wife, riches, and tax-free living. If you want to forget your negative past, you start by being productive and fruitful, using your skill and ability right where you are to get the victory. And when you get the victory, the reward of your victory makes you forget where you came from or what you've been through. God says, I'm going to give you Ephraim first, and after you experience Ephraim, you're going to get Manasseh. That's God's process for changing your negative past. There are people still sitting in a negative situation in this room this morning expecting God to deliver them. Lord, deliver me. Then I'll do some great things for you. God says, no, get off your, get off your whining and self-pity potty and get out here and do something for me, and then I'll deliver you. And even Joseph did not correctly perceive how he was able to forget his father's house. He follows this same rule, but he didn't know it. Joseph was fruitful and productive. He served, he organized, he administrated in Potiphar's house and in jail. I mean, the kid was in him, it was his gift. So even though he was 
kidnapped, taken down, put in slavery as a Hebrew in an Egyptian house. What did he do? He did what he always does. I'm good at administrating. Pretty soon, Potiphar said, this kid is so good, I'm going to put him over everything, including my checkbook. He's got power over everything but my wife. Everything else, Joseph runs it. He got promoted out of a bad situation because he was fruitful and productive with what he had, though he was in a crummy situation. Then the wife turns on him because she's trying to hit on him, a desperate Egyptian housewife, and she hits on him, and he, he runs away. Sometimes a good run is better than a bad stand, fellas. You know, God doesn't say pray in tongues to resist fornication. He says run, flee fornication. You, you, you okay, well, I'm losing my thoughts here. I'm going, I'm going on the dark side here. I don't want to go there. And then when he got put in jail, instead of saying, what a, what a, I didn't do anything wrong. I did everything right. I served this guy with excellence. And then this happens to me. I'm mad at God. I'm mad at my parents. I'm mad at the government. I'm mad at my family. I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to sit, sulk, and sour. He didn't. He became an administrator and a trustee in a jail. He ran everything. That's what he did. That's the gift he had. That's what he used. Does everybody see that? This is going to get this kid promoted all the way up to Pharaoh. He hasn't got a clue that that's what's going to happen, but that's what did happen. He could also dream and interpret dreams, but that's all he knew. So even in affliction, he's being fruitful and productive by using the skill and gifts that he has. And the skillful use of those gifts brought him before Pharaoh. His fruitfulness and productivity in captivity got him delivered from prison and promoted to prime minister. See, if you can't be faithful in the ordinary, you won't qualify for the extraordinary. Jesus said, if you're not faithful with a little, you won't be faithful with much. So bloom right now where you're planted. If you wait and wait and wait, you're going to wait the rest of your life. First Ephraim, fruitful, productive, then Manasseh, delivered. And when Joseph's brothers came to Egypt, Joseph had been so blessed, he had no vengeance in his heart towards them. And that's how God's going to do it for you. If you just wait for deliverance to come first, you can wait the rest of your life and have no deliverance. People pray, Lord, anoint me. I'll do great things for you. God says, no, start doing some great things for me and I'll anoint you. God's not going to solve your problem for you until you start using what He's given you. And while you're being busy being productive with your skill and gift, He starts to deliver you from that painful past. Here's another little secret. God does not respond to self-pity or sympathy. He responds to obedience instantly. No matter how pitiful your case is, you won't attract God's attention until you move in line with His principles. Doesn't He say to obey is better than sacrifice, than anything? Just do what I told you. Remember the ten lepers. Jesus said, go show yourself to the priest. And when he said that, they were not healed. But Scripture says, and while they were going, they were healed. It was in the process of going, they got their healing. It was in Ephraim, they got Manasseh. They simply obeyed what he said. What can we do? Well, he said, go show yourself to the priest. Let's go. Now, this is Ephraim. And when they got to the priest, Manasseh, they got healed. They just did what he said. He didn't ask them to do what they couldn't do. He asked them to do what they could do. 
So you've got to obey God's principles. If you want a grain of corn to grow, no matter how you pray over that seed, spit on it, lay hands on it, cast demons out of it, it isn't going to grow. There's a principle here. If you want seed to grow, you plant it. You can pray over it all you want to, but it's not going to grow. You've got to plant it. That's a Bible principle. That's an agricultural principle. Plant it and it'll grow. If you want to receive a healing ministry before you pray for anybody sick, you'll never have it. If you want to prosper before you learn to trust God with your money and be generous and tithe, you'll never have it. God says, I'll give you Ephraim before you get Manasseh. You have to be fruitful in your land of affliction before God delivers you from the effect of your past. Another illustration, 2 Kings chapter 7. Now we've got Samaria under siege, starving to death. The people are locked in. They're boiling babies to eat. It's so desperate. They're selling dove dung for a quarter. People are so desperate. It's a bad situation. They're being surrounded and besieged by the, by the, by the enemy, by the ar- Syrian army. And you've got four lepers outside the gate. Well, they can't get in. And if they got in, they're going to die. There's no food. And if they say where they are, they're going to die. And if they go out into the desert where the Syrian army is, they'll probably be killed. They don't know. So one of them makes this statement. Why sit here till we die? Boy, that'd be a good thing for some people sitting in here right now. You've just gone through a divorce. You went through a setback financially. Maybe you lost a job and you just, you know, I can see you at home and I can see you, you know, over and over and over And, you know, your wife needs to say to you, or maybe a best friend needs to say to you, wives, are you just going to sit here and die? You can. God will allow you. Go ahead. Sit there and die. He will let you. But if you'd like to change this thing, then you're going to have to be fruitful and productive right where you are now. A prophecy had been given the night before that said to these people starving, tomorrow, at this time, there will be abundance. Tomorrow, in one day, there's going to be no famine, going to be abundance. Everybody laughed. Everybody heard it. But nobody did anything about it. Like most believers, they probably felt, well, the Lord will bring it to pass in His own time. Well, that's cute, but that's not Bible. So rather than just sit and wait for deliverance, which would never come, they got up and walked towards the enemy's camp. And as they moved, the enemy heard the sounds of four armies. This was a miracle. God made them hear four armies coming, and they fled and left everything. And these four lepers walked into this enemy's camp and saw abundance. And the prophecy came true. If the four lepers had not moved, that prophecy would still be hanging in the air. There are prophecies hanging over many heads because they're waiting for it to happen by itself. But God says, you must be fruitful first. And the four lepers had to be fruitful by walking. Now, that's all they could do. They couldn't fight. They had no weapons. They're lepers, but they could walk. And they walked towards the enemy's camp. And as they began to do what they knew how to do, God gave them deliverance that He promised. And God will deliver us from our past when we start to be productive and fruitful. Everybody's got a solution sitting inside of you. You are a solution looking for a problem to solve. Every gift God gives you is the answer to someone's problem. Every thought that God puts into your heart is a response to a need. 
But not all of them get used, unfortunately. Those who have the courage to use what God has given to them ultimately receive the deliverance from their past. So if you want your situation to change today, if you want America to change, if you want your marriage to change, if you want your financial condition to change, you can pray and pray and cry and cry and buy all the Kleenex in every H-E-B, and it will never change. But it will change when God has someone do something productive. Never say, God, if you give me. Instead, do what you can, and God will give you. Doesn't the Bible say, give and you shall receive? That's in anything. Love, time, mercy, forgiveness, finance, whatever. The difficulty is in the land of affliction, what do most people want to do? Nothing. They just want to complain and murmur and blame. It's my mother's fault. It's my father's fault. It's my teacher's fault. My coach's fault. It's the government's fault. But it's never their fault. But in the midst of your difficulty, there's an answer. I've noticed that most people in life, their point of breakthrough came at their greatest place of desperation. The person most effective in counseling battered women was battered herself. And she started to be fruitful. And as she helped others, God began to deliver her from the pain of her past. I spoke to a chapter of Mothers Against Drunk Drivers, and this incredible lady and her husband who lost their teenage daughter to a drunk driver in Texas was going around the country encouraging, helping families heal that had been hurt, and also getting laws that were stiffer against drunk drivers passed. But I noticed something about all of them. They were all healthy and happy and vibrant although they had pictures of the lost daughter and all. And I thought, what's the secret here? They stepped out of their own comfort zone, anger, depression, and pity, and started helping others. And as they began to be fruitful and productive, they've got something to say. They've been there and done it. People will listen. God gave them an audience. They were able to spread their faith. They were able to bring hope and encouragement. They developed influence. And at the same time, they're healing themselves, and they're probably not even aware of it. Or you could just become bitter and stay home and be negative and die sour. You look at JP, how does a young kid that's vibrant, full of testosterone, who gets legs blown off, part of a hand, uh, incredible handicap, how does he become, by the way, he was a drummer for 14 years. You'd use your feet and your hands. He had to teach himself how to play guitar uh, since 2011. Pretty, pretty darned incredible to be able to do that. But his going out and helping others, encouraging other disabled vets and wounded warriors, give, you shall receive. As he has been fruitful in giving to others, it's brought joy and healing to his own heart and purpose to him. You see, he, he didn't just, oh, why me? He said, I'm going to use what I've got. I'm going to take my disability and use it to other men. And if I were in the hospital recovering from a severe wounds and amputation, who would I want talking to me? Somebody whole? I doubt it. I'd be listening to somebody who had been there and experienced what I had suffered as well, but seems to be on top of the game. And that's exactly what JP's doing. Incredible young man. So if this woman just sits down and says, God, deliver me before I start ministering to your people, she will stay in a psychologist, a counselor's office forever and never get any better. You can never be free from your past until you start using what God has given you in your land of affliction. Most new companies were set up as a result of somebody's frustration. They were looking for something they couldn't get, and they said, okay, why don't I do it myself? And as they became productive through their affliction, they got Manasseh. Your struggle 
is your ministry. Because what God delivers you out of, He makes you minister to. God took man out of the earth and then gave him dominion over it. God won't make the bank error and put a million dollars in your account. I know that's shocking for some of you. Why? Because He's not a God of error. He's a God of excellence. He's not going to use error to bless you. He's going to use excellence to bless you and obedience. So you use what you have. The real power of the Holy Spirit is a lot more than just a feeling. It's okay to have a feeling, but if it doesn't cause you to execute an activity, nothing will change. If all you got was a feeling, you didn't get power. Feelings won't change any problems in this room, right? But you solve a problem. You kill a Goliath. You marry the king's daughter and escape your negative past. Thank God for a Goliath. Thank God for Egypt. Joseph would be unknown without it. David would be unknown and not a king of Israel had it not been for a giant. These lepers would never have been healed if they hadn't decided to take a risk and execute an activity. And if anything's going to change for you, you can talk to all your girlfriends about your divorce. You can keep talking and talking and talking and, oh, I had this and now I don't have this and now I'm going to have to do this. I suggest to you, get 30 days of crying out of your system. Then get rid of your Kleenex and get busy with what you know how to do and what you can do. And then you watch God do the supernatural to bring deliverance. For more information on Summit Christian Center and Rick Godwin, visit SummitSA.com and connect with us on social media.